You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're talking with Dr. Patricia DeClotz. Dr. DeClotz has been superintendent in the Kettle Moraine School District since 2006, and for the last 10 years has been recognized as a national leader in personalized and competency-based learning for students and teachers. In 2016, Dr. DeClotz was named Wisconsin Superintendent of the Year. It's also interesting to note that Dr. DeClotz, like Tom, had a private sector career before becoming a school administrator. In this episode, Dr. DeClotz describes her innovative approach to high school transformation, which includes launching three themed academies inside a traditional comprehensive school. Let's listen in to find out why and how she took that approach and why it's worked. Patricia DeClotz, welcome back to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you on. Uh, You joined us two years ago and we talked about teacher professional learning. Uh, Today, we'd really love to dive into the subject of high school uh, transformation. Uh, Before we do that, Pat, I think it's worth noting uh, that you had a 20-year private sector career before uh, becoming a teacher and a school administrator. What what did you do, and then what provoked the shift to education? Sure. Um, well, I, I was in banking and financial software development uh, for a good amount of time prior to becoming an educator. I didn't get my teaching license until I was 42, and uh, it was really a number of Things that coalesced. My husband was transferred from Charlottesville, Virginia to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I stopped consulting as I had been doing. And um, with that, as he began traveling more, I wanted to do less of the um, school board work that I had been doing. I'd been on the board for five years. And so I resigned from the board and enrolled in a university and finished my teaching degree and uh, stepped into the classroom in 1996. Wow. It's interesting that you you were in fintech uh, before we knew it was fintech. You must, <laughs> yes. you must um, smile at all the new my company, banking apps that are being launched now. Well, it continually changes. We were the ones that first introduced a credit card or a debit card and did that kind of processing. So I've seen a few things. So you became superintendent in uh, Kettle Moraine in 2006. Um, For our listeners that don't know, maybe you could describe the communities that you serve there just west of Milwaukee. Sure. We are what I would refer to as an ex-urban area. Um, We serve parts of 10 little municipalities, and we are midway between Milwaukee and Madison. Very nice um, geography in the area that we live. And uh, I would say that the parents have very high expectations for education and for their students. And um, we have the benefits of having fairly large metropolitan areas right around us. So talk about um, your early strategic planning work in in 2006, um, and particularly as it uh, pertains to the high school. What condition was the high school in, and then what kind of a community conversation did you try to create? Sure. 
Uh, our high school at the time uh, that I stepped into the superintendency was a very successful, comprehensive high school. Um, actually, every school in this district had earned the U.S. Department of Education's Blue Ribbon uh, School um, designation, Blue Ribbon School of Excellence designation. And um, at the time that I stepped into the superintendency, it was probably noted that uh, the largest achievement gap that we could identify was with our most gifted learners. They were the ones that were making the least amount of growth over a year's time. The foundation for the strategic planning that we did came out of a board motion that passed in uh, May of 2005, I believe, where uh, the board charged the administration to transform our educational delivery system to better and more efficiently meet the needs of all students. It came somewhat out of the blue after about five months of budget discussions as they were wrestling with how to make budget reductions. And with very little discussion, it was passed unanimously and I was given part of the responsibility along with Bob Davidovich, the two of us headed up the uh, work of how does a district transform. This was well beyond or well before anyone was talking about personalized learning, at least in our conversations. And we weren't exactly sure how to begin the work. So we uh, actually used McCrell to do a deep dive into scenario planning, which is a very, very rich visioning process that looks into the future and identifies um, some, some very uh, themes that emerge regardless of which future uh, might be coming your way. Uh, it was a 17-month process that involved 25 members of a community and really provided a very strong foundation for us as we move forward. What came out of that specific to the high school and how would you say the high school transformation, what what's the origin story there? So as we received these recommendations, which in and of themselves didn't appear to be very earth shaking, what we uh, learned was if we wanted to transform, we had to change from where we were or what we were. At the time, uh, Wisconsin had the provision that local school boards could charter a school and waive certain expectations that were, um, you know, inherent in the traditional uh, school setting. And we looked to using what's called an instrumentality charter school approach to um, begin working with how do we transform learning. We um, with an instrumentality charter school, the employees are employees of the district with all the benefits of the district. Uh, and the school still has its own independent uh, governance council that uh, determines the policies and expectations for those students uh, as they enter and then leave the school. Um, the, my board's expectation was that these schools would meet or exceed both the expectations and the performance of our comprehensive high school. So we started small. We had uh, two, uh, we went through a process that 
was kind of a feasibility study uh, that I brought over from my work in private sector. So we developed feasibility study framework and uh, investigated how much community support we might have for an idea. One idea was for a performing arts school. Another idea was a school of global leadership. There were other ideas that had surfaced, but they didn't pass the muster of the feasibility study. So we began with those two little charter schools and um, learned a great deal along the way. I, let, let's uh, do a quick deep dive on the why charter. I, I'm curious if you were, did you get any, uh, was, was there a planning grants that went with it or any extra funding or was it the, the uh, uh, policy flexibility uh, was it the governance model that was interesting? What led you to uh, explore that option? I think the primary reason that we looked at it, and there certainly were other advantages once we started to dig into it, but the primary uh, motivating factor in looking at charters was how do we become something different if we're living within the constraints of what is? So we knew we wanted to play with ideas like seat time and place of learning, uh, that we wanted to make the learning more relevant than what we were seeing in the classrooms um, and wanted student engagement to be at a much higher level. We uh, recognized that student voice was a really important um, part of engaging students in their learning, that we needed to listen to them, get their feedback, uh, engage them in some of this design work. And so in order to um, have those permissions, we needed to waive those um, expectations or standards that the state had put forward. Where did the uh, proposals that you looked at in, in these feasibility studies, where did those come from? Were, were the academy ideas your idea or were there teacher leaders or did they come from the community? It, it was um, a little bit of a combination of both. So I think that as we started the work, uh, people wanted to test if I was really saying, how would you like to create a school? Like that's a big responsibility. So it was very much a collaborative process as we first started this work. Uh, people that had a vision for what education might be or things that they saw that they would like to change. Um, so there was kind of a key, uh, we call them a director, uh, for each of the schools that engaged in some of the research, we were able to get a planning grant for one of the schools. We were denied the planning grant for the other one. So we had two different models going forward at the same time. And it became very apparent to me that uh, whereas in private sector, it's often recognized with innovation, you have to invest in research and development. And in education, that simply hasn't been the case, that, that without an investment in the research and development, it was very, very challenging to um, really do the work that we needed to do, to invest in the people, to do the designing. So I would say that um, you know, finding the support for the school that didn't get the planning grant was one of my biggest challenges at that time. 
to give them the release time and the opportunity to uh, think outside of their full-time responsibilities, really. So the feasibility studies were going on in, in 2009-10. There was a, this planning year, 2010-11, and then you opened two academies in in 2011-12. Is that right? I believe that's correct. Um, yeah. And tell me about launching those schools. How, how big were they? Um, who enrolled in the schools? Mm-hmm. And we piloted the um, School for Performance and the Arts um, the year before they were launched as a school. So we piloted some of the work that we were doing with a handful of students, a couple handfuls of students. When that school opened, it had about 65 students, and we did not have seniors. So uh, opened with 9, 10, 11 Uh, 11th grade students. The um, KM Global actually started much smaller, and uh, it really opened with only about 20, 25 students. And um, it remains our smallest of the schools. But um, one of the things that uh, became really apparent in the first years that we did this was that kids wanted to belong. They wanted an identity, and they wanted to... uh, belong. And with these micro schools, as you've called them in the past, they had a sense of belonging. They didn't really care if you were a freshman or a, an 11th grader. They were part of this new school. And there was a great deal of collaboration and support uh, for each other. There was um, just a, a very, very finely developed uh, commitment to success. So you had these tiny uh, teacher teams in these new academies. How was it a challenge to support them? Their work must have been uh, both complicated and a little bit political since they were in both of these academies are located inside the traditional high school. They are under one campus roof. That is correct. I think it was challenging for them. I do think that people wondered what they were doing and why they were doing it. I know early on there were questions of why aren't we good enough? Like, why do you need to do something different? So one of the big takeaways, I think, is make sure that you have a very solid grounding in the why. Like, why do we need to do education differently than we did in the past? And uh, there's a great deal of research that people can draw on to help build that urgency as to why we need to prepare students for a future that's very different than a future that I might have been prepared for uh, or prepared to to, uh, be successful in. And um, as we looked at the small communities that we were creating, the students sense of ownership and agency, their ability to advocate for themselves, um, their understanding of why they were learning and you know what they were learning, how it was important to the work that they wanted to do, um, was very compelling. They became the best advocates for the work that we were doing over anyone else. The challenge of the teachers, so again, one of the things that I would recommend is start small and start with the willing. Uh, We all know that there are various types of um, 
employees who look at change uh, through different lenses. Some are more uh, able to embrace the opportunity of risk-taking. Others are a little less uh, little less eager. They may be a little more reluctant, but they also are very focused on what's best for students. And with some support and guidance, they will embrace that opportunity. Uh, we know that we have a, a good curve in the middle that are um, maybe less eager to make change, but are very hardworking, good people. And they really need to be given the opportunity to understand why this is a better way of meeting student needs and how it can affect a student's agency in the choices that they're making as they go forward. Uh, so we started with the willing. Rather than trying to uh, build enough willpower amongst an entire campus staff, we started with a handful who were excited, who were willing, who were risk takers, who were able um, to you know, be very reflective and evaluate their successes as well as where they needed to improve. One of the things that starting small allows you is the ability to be nimble. If you're learning something that isn't working as well as you want, you can change it very quickly. So we learned a great deal and we did make modifications and changes along the way in order to uh, best meet those student needs and best support the staff in doing so. How would you say that uh, in those first few years that the learning experience was different for students than in the traditional school? So we uh, started and each school has a little different pedagogy. Uh, so we didn't, first of all, we didn't say it has to look the same. We said, we want to learn what's best and create the vision, uh, create your mission, define the pedagogy, and we will continually evaluate to see if you're making the mark. Um, interdisciplinary learning was a big piece of what we looked at. Uh, seminars rather than, uh, you know, semester or quarter-based learning, we went for um, maybe five to six-week um, inquiries or um, deep dives into a content area. Um, again, when you jump over to global, they um, had the uh, expectation that every student would do a inquiry, almost like a, a dissertation defense, a deep dive into a research question that they would defend publicly in front of community um, that was very interdisciplinary. And again, they would meet the standards um, that we were holding them to uh, by doing these um, defenses and presenting the evidence would show their mastery. It's been a really exciting um, journey as we look at how things have evolved, because we really see the importance of um, letting students struggle with their learning, not for the purpose of pleasing their teacher, but for the purpose of them understanding and answering their own question, being able to publicly defend an idea um, and, and present it in a way that um, can stand up to questions and um, criticisms from complete strangers. So it's been a, a 
good experience in that we broke the model of you're doing this out of compliance to engaging the student to set their own goals, to design some of the work that they were doing and how to demonstrate um, their, their mastery of learning targets and certainly supporting them um, in that learning through various teacher-led um, or teacher-supported uh, learning processes. One of the things that we discovered in doing this in the area of mathematics was the benefit of an online um, textbook, if you will, and the role that the teacher plays with an online textbook. So rather than uh, simply giving students uh, an online resource and expecting them to navigate uh, to our level of expectation, uh, we developed um, performance tasks that uh, once a student felt that they were ready to move to another area, they had a separate um, assessment, if you will, that allowed us to check for readiness um, and to make sure that it wasn't simply um, surface knowledge, that there was some deep knowledge behind it. It's allowed us to recognize the importance that pace has to do with deep learning and the individual nature of each student that comes into our classrooms. Uh, we don't have to be prescriptive about uh, what you learn on which day, but rather these are the expectations. This is a recommended pathway, and you're going to take the time you need to show us the proficiency that we know is needed in order to continue to advance in that course of study. Hi, Emily Leaptag here, co-author of the new book, The Power of Place. In my first couple of years as an elementary school teacher, I didn't pay much attention to where my students were from or their connections to their communities, although I really should have. Once I realized the value and strengths of these connections, I had an entirely new perspective on teaching and learning. I began to realize the incredible amount of untapped potential and creativity in the students that I was trying to so desperately contain in my traditional four-walled classroom. My own most powerful learning experiences have been deeply rooted in place and connected to my community. So why wouldn't this also be true for my students? There is nothing more incredible than witnessing one of nature's finest phenomena more invigorating than being uncomfortable and curious in a new culture or context, and more humbling than helping tackle an issue in your own community. You're invited to explore or continue your own place-based journey with us in our new book, The Power of Place, available for pre-order now at the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Initially, these three academies um, seemed quite autonomous. Um, when I visited first um, five years ago, you could clearly identify these these three academies. They had a different part of the building, and they often had a different um, they had different kind of furniture. Um, it seemed like there was a high degree of autonomy. Um, is that is that fair to say? I believe it is fair to say. They still have a great deal of autonomy, but one of the principles that we put in place from the very beginning, the board set the expectation that we learn from each other. 
So these charter directors sit on my leadership council and they are part of the work that we do to align to the district's goals. Uh, they set their own goals, of course, as do all of our schools. But um, we have been extremely intentional in trying to cross-pollinate, if you will, to learn what works, to understand why it works, to see how we can then use that to move the work forward in other areas. Well, uh, so I'd, I'd love to shift gears a little bit and talk about the impact on uh, on the traditional comprehensive high school. When I visited um, a year ago, I was struck by a couple things. One is that you've done a beautiful remodel of the entire facility. And so it's it's all a very modern facility with lots of flexible spaces. And I it was quite difficult to determine where one academy stopped and where the, the traditional high school started. They seemed to be quite integrated. And, and I got the sense that instructional strategies um, may have been picked up by the comprehensive high school and that uh, to some extent, the, the traditional high school had been um, at least is beginning to be transformed as as it's learned from the smaller academies. Is that is that true? I would say that's a, a very fair statement um, because we intentionally are trying to learn from each other. And at the, um, I want to say 2014, that's a long time ago already, but in that uh, community forum where we were going over our strategic vision and planning, uh, the community told us loud and clear that they didn't want personalized learning for some. They wanted it for all. And their expectation was that we figure out how we scale this, again, within the context of each. So that has been a, a, a big part of the work that we're doing is trying to scale opportunities that recognize the unique individual of each student and that we support them in their learning in a way that allows them to own their learning and to learn at the pace and through the, the places or uh, processes that best meet their needs. Well, have you found that the, the facilities modernization has helped create a learning environment that supports what you're trying to do, not only in the academies, but in the traditional high school? The facility improvements have definitely uh, played a role. A great example of that is in our cafeteria commons where uh, our, our high school is on a four block day and two of the blocks it's used for instruction. Uh, we call it a math pathways approach. The other two blocks it's used uh, maybe more independently, but in addition to being, uh, you know, where kids eat their lunch. So uh, in the math pathway, if you were to come to our high school first thing in the morning, you would see maybe 100, 140 students in this cafeteria commons and probably five to seven teachers that are working with small groups, um, answering individual questions, etc. cetera. Uh, and this is, um, again, using that online curriculum allows students to progress at the pace that they want 
as rapidly or when they need support not to push them forward when they don't have the mastery. Uh, we, we've learned that if a student doesn't successfully complete Algebra 1, they won't successfully complete Algebra 2. And Algebra 2 is a graduation requirement. So it's really, really critical that we kids don't go on past Algebra 1 until they can demonstrate mastery at a B level, if you want to use a letter grade. So, um, and again, the team of education uh, experts, our math educators, uh, have developed um, their own assessments, performance assessments that help to uh, do check-ins to that. They've got the diagnostic feedback from the um, tool that we use uh, to pull small groups or to see if someone's not making progress. Each student has a mentor that uh, they meet and set goals and monitor their progress to accomplishing those goals. And again, one of the things that I think we've learned through uh, this work that we've done with personalized learning is it's not only about the academics. The ability for students to set goals, to monitor progress, to hold themselves accountable, to understand when they need to redefine perhaps their pathway to accomplishing their goal uh, and maybe the commitment that they're putting into accomplishing that goal. Those are life skills that help create that employee that our business partners tell us they're looking for. So uh, Pat, you're, you're, you're really 10 years into high school transformation. How would you say it's working? I would say that I'm very proud of the work we're doing because of the impact that it's having on the students that we serve. Uh, and what I mean by that is it's more than their academics. Their academics are absolutely critically important, but I believe that we are better preparing our students to be successful as they go off, whether it's post-secondary or a career, that we've developed um, the skills and dispositions that our employers and our post-secondary friends are looking for, that agency and ownership of learning and understanding of what kind of impact they want to make on the world. And is that true of both the, the comprehensive high school as well as the three academies? I think it's probably most pronounced in the three academies, but we are seeing the impact of that personalized learning approach as it's um, making its way into more traditional learning environments and um, some of the redefined pathways. We now have eight pathways at our high school uh, that look at, um, you know, pace, place, voice, choice, path, all of that. So is, is this a an approach that you would recommend to other people, this idea of starting with the willing, creating micro schools or a school within a school academy, and then allowing those to, to flourish? Is this a, a viable approach to comprehensive school reform? I think it's a very viable approach to school reform. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes that says, if you wait for perfect conditions, you will never get anything done. And, you know, I think about large scale reform and you can spend all your energy trying to get people ready to go where you could be using that time to learn from the beginning. And, you know, knowing that people need models and that there are differences, if I can show 
teachers that uh, maybe haven't experienced personalized learning themselves, what it looks like and the impact it has, they're much more willing to take it on because ultimately all teachers want to do what's best for students. So, you know, I, I just think that this is a really good way to build understanding in the community, start with a small group of parents who see the impact it's having on theirs and they have conversations with others. It's really easy to be a, you know, they used to say Monday night quarterback. I don't know if that's even what's said anymore. But, you know, it's easy when you're on the sideline to be critical of what's happening. But when you're in the game and playing the game, you have a very vested interest. Um, I think that one of the big lessons, one of the big pieces of advice I would give is remember that your community is always evolving. It's always changing. You always have new people coming in. So you have to constantly be communicating your why and how to your parents, to your business partners, so they understand the importance of the work that you are doing. Could you have gone faster and uh, would that have been a good idea or a bad idea? Like in, in what ways uh, might you do things differently? Sure. I don't know that going faster is always better. Uh, my grandmother used to say, make haste slowly. And I think that's in many ways what we've done here because we've learned from everything that we've done. And when we've gotten pushback, it's caused us to slow down and really look at how can we do this in a way that's not going to cause a complete um, stop to the work that we're trying to do. So uh, I don't know that I could go faster than we've gone. We've done some incredible work. We have more work to do. And it's about readiness. Uh, when you're focused on meeting the needs of students, you're always going to have more work to do. How would you describe the path forward for uh, the high school, both the, the three academies and the comprehensive high school? What, what do you hope to be better at um, 18 months from now? I would say that we are looking really uh, deeply at uh, making some of those um, place-based learning opportunities available for more students in our high school. Uh, schedules can really create problems when you're in a very tight start-stop schedule. It doesn't meet the, the needs of our business partners as they try to um, bring students into their workplace. And we have to be more flexible in the way that we define learning. Uh, it's not simply when a teacher is standing in front of the classroom, but there's lots of ways of measuring progress and, and setting plans to obtain a goal. Uh, let me recap a couple of the things that I've observed at Kettle Marine that I think you guys do really well, and then I'll let you underscore the ones that make the most difference. I, it feels to me like early on you distributed leadership. Uh, you identified uh, teacher leaders that were ready to move. Uh, you supported them by uh, allowing them to cultivate um, ideas for these academies. Um, I think you did a masterful job at creating a, a collaborative environment. Places, other places doing academies or charters created an us versus them. And maybe it's because it's inside the high school that uh, in a single building that it, it, it's collaborative, but the, 
the community that you've created um, with four high schools in one building is really quite remarkable. And then the way that you've supported teacher professional learning uh, in the district, including the three academies is really, uh, I think, quite remarkable. Th those all seem to be part of the success story. Does that ring true? I would say they all ring true. And, you know, it, it really, I think, is reflective of how do we value the people we work with. If I'm the only one that has an idea, it's going to be a very, very impoverished district. So when you distribute leadership, when you can see the person that's working closest to the problem and learn from them, when you allow them to collaborate, these are the lessons that I brought with me from the business sector. You know, it was an all hands on deck in meeting the needs of our clients and customers. That's the way we need our teachers to be engaged in the work of education. And the idea that, um, you know, we all have value and we all have voice and we should have a common goal. If we don't have a common goal, then somebody needs to get out of the boat, right? So, you know, this idea of um, letting people be the best that they can be, bringing their excellence into the work that they do, to me, that's how we meet the needs of our students today. Patricia DeClotz, it's uh, been a treat to have you back on the uh, Getting Smart podcast. Thanks for your lessons learned on high school transformation. Um, where can people learn more about the great work being done in uh, Kettle Moraine? I would point them first to our website, kmsd.edu for Kettle Moraine School District. Um, and we do professional development twice a year, once in the summer, once in the winter. And we call it Transform Ed. You can Google that on our website as well or search for that on our website and uh, learn about opportunities if people want to come and do tours. Uh, we appreciate the collaborative environment you've created inside the district and the way that you work with educators around the country. Um, a lot of us are learning from your work, Pat. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much, Tom. A big thank you to Dr. Pat DeClotz for joining us on today's episode. We appreciate her student-centered leadership and her efforts to build community support for innovations in learning. Okay, that's it for today, listeners. But before you go, don't forget to hit subscribe. That way, every Wednesday morning, you'll have our newest episode delivered right to you. Oh, and while you're at it, don't forget to leave us a rating and a review. Until next time, for the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.